Well, I'll round everybody up together, and then we're going to pray uh, together here. Let me bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for our time together this morning that we can gather together under your means of grace and that you have promised to sanctify us, uh, to enable us to persevere. And I do pray for our church today. It's an important day as we seek to have a godly membership that uh, desires to give you honor and praise in all that it does. And I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd speak through Bob in the sermon and Mike Kaufman as he explains membership. And also here now in logic, help us think well upon these syllogisms, upon the hypothetical syllogisms in order that we don't just learn to argue for the sake of argue, but that we would learn more about you and your word and therefore know more about your glory and your name. We ask that you would accomplish this through us and for us, all for the greatness of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you can see, we're going to be doing part two here now. We're in formal logic, and we're going to be looking at conditional sentences. And I want to remind all of you that we left off with hypothetical syllogisms, which, remember, simply has to do with if-then statements. We said that the if portion of the sentence is the antecedent. The then portion is the consequent. That's a hypothetical syllogism. So today, we're going to really hone in on these because there are so many of them in the New Testament. And I want you to remember from last week that we said that there are only two valid deductions that can be made from hypothetical syllogisms. Do you remember what they are? The first, of course, is affirming the antecedent. So that's affirming the if portion of the sentence, right? The second valid deduction that we can make is denying the consequent. So if we said, if Jim is at home, then he's not at work. We can either affirm the if portion, Jim is at home, therefore what? He's not at work. Or, what's that? Yeah, 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 I thought of you, Jim, in your long ride. The other thing we could do is deny the consequent, which would be to say, Jim is not at work, right? Because what is the consequent? It says that he's not at work, which if we deny that, it would be that he's not not at work, which means he is at work. Therefore, what? He's not at home. Does that make sense? So those are the only two valid deductions we could do. Well, then we looked at the invalid deductions, and of course there's only two. We cannot be affirming the consequent. A little memory aid, AC power. You don't want alternating current. That'll break stuff in your house. And you don't want to deny the consequent. You don't want to be brought before the DA, the district attorney. I don't know if that helps anyone. Maybe that's more confusing. But you can't affirm the consequent, and you can't deny the antecedent. Okay, that's where we left off. Now, this week, we're going to be focusing more on the biblical usage of these syllogisms. And in the biblical world, I want you to think about if you're reading perhaps a commentary or maybe even a journal article, you're going to be reading scholars who are going to be using these types of syllogisms, except they call them something different. They call them conditional sentences. And they're going to use, instead of antecedent and consequent, they're going to use protesis, apotesis. But what you have to realize, it's the same thing. Okay? So from here on out, because we're primarily concerned in logic with studying the scriptures, we're going to be using protesis, apotesis. Protesis is the if portion, apotesis is the then portion. 
If you read a commentary and they refer to a prodesis, that's the if portion. That's what you'll know. Okay, now, if you ever get confused as to which comes first, prodesis, think of pro, like prototype. If you have a prototype aircraft, it means it's the first of its kind. And so think of that coming first. And then notice there's a preposition prefix here on apodesis. Apo is a preposition meaning coming from. It's that which follows from. Okay, and so if you ever get confused which is which, that may help you. All right? Now, again, in the biblical studies department, when we're talking about the scriptures, scholars recognize four different classes of these conditional sentences. Okay, there's four. Now, some have slightly different arrangements, but these are primarily agreed upon. The only difference is in the third class conditional, and I'll explain those. So let me give you a list of these, and I'm just going to give you a list, and then we're going to go through examples of each. Okay, so let's begin with the first class conditional. Now, this class conditional used to be called the condition of fact. Okay, that was the old school. Now, recently it's been changed to this, assume true for the sake of argument, and I like that better. Okay, now here's why. If you say something is the condition of fact, it seems to indicate that it's expressing reality. However, this doesn't always express reality, this first class conditional. Sometimes, and oftentimes, it's merely either the biblical writer or someone in the biblical narrative expressing something to be true for the sake of argument, even though it's not true. And I'll be showing you examples of that. So if you thought that the first class conditional merely refers to the fact that we're talking about reality, the way the world is, you might mislead yourself. Okay? The same thing applies for the second class conditional. It used to be called the condition contrary to fact. Okay? But again... It's either the biblical author or someone in the narrative assuming something to be untrue for the sake of argument, although it may be true. It actually may correspond to reality. Okay? You don't know that. So context is going to tell you whether or not the statement corresponds to reality. Okay? So that's a second-class conditional. It may be assumed untrue and also untrue. In other words, it doesn't reflect reality. But that's something you're going to have to decide. Is everybody clear on that? Okay, all right, now, let's get into the third class conditional. This class does a lot of work. Notice the gloss, and this is what I want you to think about. When you think third class conditional, think of what is certain. That is called a present general condition. That is the way the world is. Think about it this way. Hypothetical syllogism or a conditional sentence. If I throw an object up in the air, then it will come down. General present condition. Why? Because that's the way the world is. Does everybody understand that? John 6, 44. That's a homework assignment. We'll get into that later. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father, what? Draws him. Why? Because that's the way the world is. That's the way our Heavenly Father has constructed the world. And so it's, a, it's just the way it is. Okay? But notice the rest of the third class condition isn't just talking about the way it is. It can also function to talk about what is likely or even possible to occur in the future. Okay, so when we're looking at a third-class conditional, we're going to be saying, wait a minute now here. Is this talking about the way the world is, or is it predicting the future? All right, and again, if it's talking about a future event, it's either likely or at least possible. Now, for those of you that know some Greek, the third-class conditional will always be tipped off by what's called the subjunctive mood. But I'm assuming most in here don't know Greek, don't want to study that, 
I'll be showing you how we can identify them using the English Bibles that you have. At least you'll be fairly confident. The fourth, now this is getting into the optative move, mood. Again, if you like Greek, this is the fourth class, and it has to do with what could or is unlikely to happen. All right, so think of the third class. You either have a present general condition, this is the way the world is, or you're talking about future events that are probably likely to happen. The fourth class is talking about what things, things that could happen but are probably less likely. Okay, you could win the lottery, but it's not likely. That would be a fourth class kind of idea. Okay, let's take examples of all these. Let's begin with first class conditionals. We have a discussion. Oh, yes, good, excellent. Let me stop there, back up. I just needed to stop because I'm confused between the third class where it says possible to happen in the future. Isn't that the same as fourth class could happen? What's the difference between You're exactly right. There's some overlap, isn't there? There's a range. So you have some blending of the third into the fourth. Okay, so the third can go anywhere from what's certain, because that's the way the world is, to what's likely, to what is, it could happen. And then the fourth kind of blends from what could to what is unlikely. But the fourth is always seen as less likely. Yeah, yeah, but to put a percentage, it's hard. So you're right, there's some overlap there, and you're right to point that out. Excellent, yep. So this looks like a progression. It looks like uh, almost like a spectrum. It starts it is. with yeah, with assume true or it, you know just assuming it is true all the way to highly unlikely. That's right. That's right. Well said. Let me well, before I move on to let me point out one item. You notice the third class conditional. Dan Wallace, who's probably one of the best in the world at uh, grammar, he put out a book called uh, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. He breaks a third class. What is certain? Remember the present general condition, he breaks that into a separate fifth class. We're not going to do that because most scholars don't. We're going to leave it right within the third class. Okay, but just to let you know, Bob. The subjunctive mood is there often because something's future and not true now. Exactly. But when it comes to the promises of God, something future that's not true now is still certain. Amen, because it expresses the will of God. Exactly. So, uh, and there's other passages because we're doing this from Scripture. So, if Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find the faith on the earth? Yeah. Um, given the fact that God always has a remnant, we could say, yes, he will. Yeah. But it's, it's put into uh, hypothetical right. or subjunctive idea because it's yet future and not, you know, we have the truth, but the Son of Man hasn't, hadn't even yet ascended to heaven, right. much less returned. Yeah, and the implication, as you're pointing out, is unless God's mercy is there, there wouldn't be faith. Yeah, yeah amen. And also the, another implication is the tendency is for people to depart from the faith. Exactly. And they need some sort of mitigating influence to stay in it. Yes. And that is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Amen. That's right. Yeah, you know, there is an implication there. I think the reason why Jesus is using it, however, is just to show the hardness of heart. But absolutely, that would, that would be a tangential implication. Yeah, people are self-deceived. They think they're in the faith, but they're not doing the things of God. Yeah. Well, um, for the sake of time, I'll just keep moving on. I'm going to go to the first class conditional. Now, remember, this is often called the condition of fact. And if you're a scholar, you know the ramifications of that, but it can be misleading to us who don't use these all the time. Okay, and that's why I liked the gloss, assume true for the sake of argument. Okay, let me give you an example why. 1 Corinthians 15, 13, Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
That's the protasis, right? Here comes the apotasis. Then is implied, not even Christ has been raised. Now, that's a first-class conditional, but if we call it the condition of fact, well, then we're saying that Paul believes reality is that Christ has not been raised from the dead. And in fact, what he's doing is he's using, Bob has talked about this on the radio numerous times, what's called a reductio ad absurdum argument. He's saying, let's take your argument to its absurd conclusion. If it's in fact true that there is no such thing as a resurrection, well, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Well, then he refutes that argument when he gets to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. But the point is, if you look at this first-class conditional and you just say it's a, it's a condition of fact, then you'd think, well, it is in fact reality that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. That's not Paul's point. He's using it for the sake of an argument to show the absurdity of his opponent's position. Does that make sense? Okay, let me give you another example. And here we're going to see a first-class conditional used in two different ways. One, it's going to reflect something that isn't true. It doesn't correspond to reality. But in the second instance, it does reflect reality. Let me show you how Jesus does this. Matthew twelve twenty-seven through 28. Let me read it, and I'll pick it apart. Jesus says, If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, remember the context here. Jesus is arguing about the, with the Pharisees about what? About what power he is using to cast out these demons. They're attributing it to Satan, really, the head of the demons, Beelzebul, what in fact it's really the power of God. So they're blaspheming the Spirit here. But what Jesus does is notice he uses a first-class conditional. He says, here's the protasis, the if portion. He's saying, let's say for the sake of argument, you're right. If by Beelzebul, you know, I cast out demons, then, here's the apotesis implied, by whom do your sons cast them out? What's the implied answer? It would have to be by Beelzebul as well. The problem with that is the Pharisaic community is accepting genuine exorcisms by the power of God through people in their community. And so they would be hypocritical in saying, well, yeah, we believe that people are casting out demons by the power of God, but then attributing the power of Satan to Jesus. And that's why Jesus goes on to show the absurdity of that. He says, for this reason, they, who's the they? It's the sons of the Pharisees. It's those within their ranks. They will be what? They'll be your judges. In other words, if people within the ranks of the Pharisaic community are casting out demons by the power of God and not by Beelzebul, why is it then that these men are attributing Jesus doing the same thing to the power of Beelzebul? It shows their bias against Jesus. And so they're more condemnable, therefore, on the judgment day. Now, Jesus uses another first-class conditional, beginning with the but. And now he's really saying, well, but on the other hand, he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, that's the protasis, here comes the apotesis, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that is a first-class condition. He's assuming this to be true for the sake of argument, and guess what? It is true. Okay, so notice the first one, he's assuming it to be true for the sake of argument, but it's not true. He's just showing the absurdity of their position. But the second one he's assuming to be true, and it is true. The kingdom of God had come upon them. So that's a first-class conditional, okay? So the way way you're going to recognize these things is when you read a conditional statement, 
you're going to be asking yourself the question, is the person either in the narrative, in this instance Jesus, or the biblical author, do they believe this to be true? And are they merely presenting this as an argument against their opponents? Or are they deceived? And so context is going to tell you what the issues are. Okay, that'll help you. Now, let's move on to the second class conditional. Is everybody clear on that, by the way? Okay, second class conditional. This is an assumed untruth for the sake of argument. Okay, now, again, that does not mean what is stated does not correspond to reality. It's an assumed untruth by the person in the biblical narrative or by the biblical author. Give you a good example here. Remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to dinner by the Pharisees. And you have this gal, probably Mary, she's a harlot, and she comes in to anoint Jesus' feet. And the Pharisees can't stand that. Here's the sinner in the presence of Jesus. So, of course, the Pharisees can't stand Jesus. So listen to what they say. Luke seven thirty nine. it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, here comes our protestant, if this man were a prophet, now implied, implied apotesis right here, then he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. Now notice what is the condition here? If this man were a prophet, that is assumed to be not the case in the mind of this Pharisee. Are you with me? But is it the case that Jesus actually is a prophet? Well, of course he is. He's the great eschatological prophet that was to come from, from the people of Israel, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Okay, now is Jesus more than a prophet? Well, of course. He's God. He's a Messiah. As Messiah, he's prophet, priest, and king. So when we say Jesus is a prophet, yes, he's a prophet, but he's more than that. He's more than that, but he's not less than that. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. But these people, the Pharisees, don't believe. Okay, now let me give you another example. Now, this time Jesus attacking the Pharisees, John 5, 46. If you believe Moses, and he's assuming that that's not true, Jesus is, right, the Protestants, then what? Then you would believe me. So here Jesus is assuming when he says, if you believe Moses, and I'm assuming that that's not the case, then you would have believed me. All right, now, not only is Jesus assuming that to be untrue, but what? It is untrue. They don't believe Moses. All right. Is everybody with me on that? Okay. Yeah. Could you say also that he he might be denying the consequent on that one? Yeah. You know, if he you're you're absolutely right. Um, he could say, "You don't believe me, therefore what? You don't believe Moses." Actually, that's exactly what he's inferring. Yep. Well done. Denying the consequent. Yes. Or, as we were probably going to say now, is denying the apotheosis. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Is everybody clear on that? Okay, now we're going to do some heavy lifting with the third-class conditional. Remember, the third-class conditional can talk about what is, okay? In other words, I put what will on here, but I should put what is. It's just the present general condition, the way the world is. Okay, if you throw an, ob- if you throw an object up in the air, then it will come down. Why? Because that's the way the world is. It's ju- it doesn't give you any moral, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't ever, but the point is just that that's the way it is. It's not talking about future. It's just talking about the way the world is. But notice the third class goes on to talk about the future as well. It talks about what is likely or probable to happen in the future or even what could happen in the future. Now, let me give you an example of a third class conditional with a present general condition. Okay, because that's going to be the majority of the third class conditionals you see 
in the New Testament. Let me show you one from Revelation chapter 3. Remember, in verses 19 through 20, Jesus here is talking about the church to Laodicea. He's giving admonitions to them. Now, there's a couple of errors that we want to avoid, and one of the errors I think that this third-class conditional can help us avoid. Okay, let me begin by reading it. Jesus says to those at Laodicea, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, notice here that, first of all, this is a passage that's often been abused because of this phrase right here, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And what many people use this passage for is they say, Well, this is clearly Jesus standing at the door of our heart and knocking. And if we open the door of our heart, then we'll be saved. And so this is where people say you have to ask Jesus in your heart. This is one of their proof texts. Now, this is very unlikely, though, because notice the preposition that's highlighted red. Notice that it's two words, in, to, right? And that's a good catch by the New American Standard Bible here. Notice it's not one word, into. It's two words, into. If it were one word, into, the idea would be this penetration within the person. The preposition there, pros, is never used in the entire New Testament for something penetrating into a person. So the two in two would refer to into the sphere of the person, that is into fellowship, not penetrating into the heart of the person or into the spirit of the person or anything like that. And that's further confirmed by the fact that he says, well, I will dine with him. So what's being referred to here is table fellowship. Is everybody with me? All right. Now, there's another thing that we want to think about is who is Jesus talking about? In other words, is he referring this to believers or non-believers? And I think primarily he's expecting the majority at Laodicea to be believers. Okay? And we have, I think, reason to believe that. First of all, because Jesus uses here, or at least John does as he records it, phileo. When Jesus says, those whom I love, phileo, I reprove and discipline. Now, we want to be very careful. Phileo is the the term for love, okay? But we want to be careful because, remember, you always hear people say, well, phileo means a family love and agapao, where you get the noun as agape. That has to do with unconditional love. And so unconditional love always has to do with sinners, and phileo always has to do with believers. That is sometimes true, but it's a general gloss, Okay, so in other words, there's a lot of times where you'll have phileo used where you'd expect agapao and vice versa. But here's one thing we can say, looking at the date of the New Testament, when it comes to phileo, now listen to me very carefully, because you don't want to go beyond this. The New Testament, when it depicts Jesus or God the Father as the subject, phileo is the verb, the object of that love is always a believer. Or in other words, way of putting it, it's never an unbeliever. Is everybody with me? So that is an indication, and that's all the further we can go. It's just every, and we see this like in John 16, 27. If you look that up, the Father has love for the saints. And so this shows a familial love that God alone has for his people. And so right away we're tipped off that this isn't the unbeliever Jesus is referring to, but the saints within the church. And that's further, I think, shown by the fact that he says, those whom I love, I what? I reprove and, and discipline. 
He disciplines his own is the idea. In fact, Pat has a couple of passages that she has. One is Proverbs 3.12. You have another one in 1 Corinthians 11.32. And uh, she's going to read both of those that talk about this concept. Um, Proverbs 3.12. Yes. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Wow. And then turning over to Corinthians. No, I'm sorry, Patty, just uh, before you read that, um, realize that, like, for instance, in Proverbs 15, the fool is the one who despises this discipline. What is the way of the fool in the book of Proverbs? Destruction. Okay. So, of course, the fool won't accept this discipline. And that ties in, I think, of how we should understand this passage. So, I'm sorry, Pat, keep going. And the second one is from uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Yeah. So the point being is then that God's people will respond to this discipline. And that's exactly what Jesus is expecting. So there's tremendous irony in this passage. Think about it. The Lord longs to have table fellowship with his people. The sad irony is Laodicea is so preoccupied with their own agenda that the irony is Jesus is on the outside of their fellowship knocking on the door saying, hey, what about me? Talk about a church that's lost its way. But, and now here's where our third class conditional can, I think, help alleviate another error because I think it's probably a present general condition. It also alleviates us of thinking that there's no call to salvation for the unregenerate here. Okay, in other words, I, I certainly believe that Jesus is primarily referring to those who will who are his believers. But this really is a call, I think, also to table fellowship for those who will believe, who are not yet believers. Okay, now think about this. Notice the condition. He says, if anyone, now we can try to claim anyone means all believers only. But if we think about the way the world is, Jesus is giving the universal call to salvation here. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, let me stop there. What do we know about Jesus using hearing, like in the book of John? John 10, 26, remember Jesus says to the Jews, you don't believe in me, why? Because you're not of my sheep. But then in John 10, 27, he says what? My sheep hear my voice. They know me. I give them eternal life. They follow me. So here's the idea then. He's saying, if anyone hears my voice, and the idea is that the elect will. The elect within Laodicea will hear this challenge, this call to be zealous and to repent, and they'll respond to it. But there's going to be many at Laodicea, perhaps, that are unregenerate, who will say that I don't want anything to do with that. And Jesus has already promised, he says, if you don't respond, I'll spit you out. Remember the play on their water? He says, because you're neither hot nor cold, but because you're lukewarm, I spit you out. He's making a play on their water. Laodicea is located by Hierapolis. Seven miles to the north, you have Hierapolis, who has these hot springs. Hot springs, hot water is therapeutic. It'll heal what ails you. But cold water that the people at Colossae had, that was a local town, they had cold, life-giving water. If you run out in the hot sun, you wanted the water from Colossae. It was life-giving. But 
what did Laodicea have? It had this lukewarm, terrible water. It was piped in from Hierapolis. It was hot. But by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. It was disgusting. And the people couldn't stand, about, stand it. In fact, if they were to complain about anything, they would complain about their water. Jesus is saying to them, not that he wants them either to be hot for him or cold against him. He's saying, I wish that you would be either therapeutic or life-giving, but as it is, you're lukewarm, you're worthless to this culture. Why? Because your church has nothing to do with the agenda that I've set forth. Making disciples of all nations, devoted themselves to the means of grace. Laodicea is the seeker-sensitive church. Oh, yes, they gather on Sunday, but it really has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying or what Jesus would have us do. And the third class conditional stands then as this present call that always stands in every generation that people can have table fellowship, not by asking Jesus in their heart, but through repentance and faith. That's the idea. Now, the juxtaposition of this, and I've heard this evangelical message ad nauseum. Yes. Different churches not here, of course. But what it is, and I think the default purpose position here is what is fair, you know, and yeah. I say that, of course, loosely, what is fair to me. And so we got a weak Jesus who's standing outside the door knocking, who can't get in the door yeah. unless you open the door for him. That's right. That's fair. And yep. it's not fair if, if he picks and chooses who he does to that's enter right. the, whoever he will. That's his right. will versus my will. That's not fair. And that's what the natural man cannot accept. It really makes him angry. And also. I've heard this message so many times. You know, poor Jesus is standing outside the door knocking. <laughs> he, he has no way of getting in unless you... Open the door for him. That's right. Your will. You are sovereign. Yeah, well said, Rich. Yeah. I think this tie, oh, excuse me. Eric, I think this ties in with uh, your previous illustration from Luke 7. Yeah. Because they, in a sense, were having a banquet with religious yes. leaders, and they invited Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so he's dining with the important people. And in the midst of this... Um, religious banquet comes a sinner woman with hair that's crying on his feet and wiping his feet and what happens at the end is he's rejected by the people who are supposed to be the insiders and and what jesus says to this woman in verse 48 of luke 7 then he said to her your sins have been forgiven so she's the one who belongs at the banquet (laughs) Her sins are forgiven. And then he said, go your, she said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So one person we know actually belonged to banquet yes. was the one that they wanted Jesus to throw out because she was a sinner. Great and they, catch. And, and, this, and this, in a sense, is ironic, and it's a rebuke, and it's a call. It's a warning against apostasy. Yeah. Even in Galatia, where they had all the problem problems, Paul still called them brothers yes. and taught them the truth. So here you have the church on danger of apostasy, rebuked, warned. But they need to be like this woman whose sins are forgiven, yes. who doesn't believe she's worthy to be at anybody's banquet. Yes, that's exactly and, right. Uh, and Bob, you know what? I think it ties in so nicely. It ties with, right with, in with this. I think you're exactly right because it ties in so well with Revelation. Remember in Revelation when you get to 19, you have the banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is foreshadowing. What's interesting is there's an eschatological picture here as well. Jesus is at the door, not of your heart, but the idea is he's ready to come back. 
He's ready for table fellowship, but it's only going to be for those who trust and repent right. in him, right? So when you get to Revelation 19, there are two suppers. Just as Bob is alluding to in Luke 7, you have some people are going to be feasted upon. These are the enemies of God. They're going to be at a supper, oh yes, but they're the ones who are going to be feasted upon by the, the, the birds. birds of the air and the yeah. beasts of the field. Demons. Yeah, but then you have the other feast that we're going to be part of. So in this general present condition, think of it this way. If, if this is confusing, this passage, think of a parallel idea, I think, in 1 John 8 through 9. It's also a third-class conditional present general condition. If we say that we have no sins, protasis, apotasis, then the truth isn't in us. We're just like Laodicea. But, protasis, if we confess our sins, then what? He's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, a, that's the way the world is. If you say that you have no sins, like those at Laodicea, remember they're saying we're wealthy, and he's saying, no, you're, you're naked, you're poor, you're blind, etc. If we say that we have no sins, we're deceiving ourselves, and we're nothing more than the unregenerate. That's the idea. Okay, so general present condition, this always stands as a warning, as Bob said, really against apostasy. Okay, now, for the sake of time, let me go on then to the fourth class conditional. Fourth class conditional is, again, what could or is unlikely to happen. Okay, now let me give you an example from 1 Peter. We studied this at TCF. Remember 1 Peter 1.6? Peter is addressing Christians who are undergoing persecution in Asia Minor, probably not at the level of governmental persecution at the hands of the Roman government, but through the citizenry. Okay, so it's not quite organized yet at this point. 1 Peter 1.6, here he, Peter is talking about the salvation that they had given by God in the previous verses. He says, in this, that is the salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, dis- you have been distressed by various trials. That term, if necessary, Bob and I have talked about this a lot of times, but it's day. Yeah. Remember that DEI? Bob has talked about this a lot in Acts. Luke Acts uses that for the divine purpose. Exactly. It's the divine purpose. So the point being here is if it's God's will that you suffer, then you're going to suffer, but you can still rejoice. Why? Because verse 7 says that even if you suffer, it shows that your faith is genuine as you persevere. Okay? Now keep that idea. Day, if necessary, if it's the divine necessity that you should suffer, then you'll suffer. Okay, if it's the divine necessity you suffer, that's the protasis, then you'll suffer. That would be the implied apotasis. Okay, but now notice here we have a fourth class conditional when we get to 1 Peter 3.14. Okay, it says, but, Peter writes, but even if, now here's the protasis, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, where's the implied apotasis? Well, right here. Then you are blessed. Okay, and then he goes on to say, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Well, notice when he says, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, then you are blessed. The condition here of the fourth class is if you should suffer. Okay, but realize when we're dealing with a fourth class, it's not something that's guaranteed. It's something that could happen. Okay, and in fact, I would put it in the could happen category. But what's the determining factor of whether or not you suffer? This is where you have to be a good reader of the whole book of Peter and say, if it's the divine necessity if it's necessary, if it's God's sovereign will. Okay, and now what is that correct? It corrects this martyrdom syndrome that so many Christians have. Back in the first century, how many have heard of Polycarp? Polycarp is this Christian, of course, that is murdered. He's martyred. 
he's put to death. And as he's dealing with this impending martyrdom, he has all these Christians coming to him saying, I'm going to volunteer for martyrdom as well. And Polycarp has this theology down. He's a disciple of uh, John, John the Apostle. He smacks himself on the head and says, what are you guys talking about? You don't volunteer for martyrdom. It's something that God brings providentially in your life if it's his will. You see, it's not something that you go around volunteering for. And so what this type of, if the understanding then is if it's God's will you may suffer, that corrects this idea that you and I should go out into the world and look for persecution. Put ourselves in jeopardy deliberately. Get rid of the martyrdom syndrome. No, if you need persecution in your life, God will, God will bring it. Okay, it's Roman 8.28 theology. God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him are called according to his purpose, right? So that's what we see here. So again, this whole understanding then of the fourth class condition tied into the if necessary idea alleviates the idea of being a martyr, a Christian martyr where you volunteer for trouble. No, that comes upon you if God deems it necessary. Okay, so it could happen, but it's only if it's God's will. All right, now let's talk about spotting these conditional sentences in English. Oh yeah, before I do, Peter's got to comment. You know, in Catholic tradition, I've heard several people say when they have an illness or something like that, they offer their malady up as a sacrifice to Christ. Can you just explain how they come to that? Or Yeah, I know how they do. No, okay, go ahead, Bob. <laughs> yeah, the go ahead. The passage about adding to what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Oh, sure. They There's abuse a, that. I think in, is that in Philippians? Yes, and, yeah, okay. and also in Peter. So yeah. there was this cult of martyrdom that uh, arose way early in church history. And there are accounts of people that, based on Hebrews, where it says they will obtain a better resurrection, they begin to believe that if you're martyred, you'd have a better resurrection than if you just lived out your life and died. That's not biblical and wasn't taught by Christ or his apostles, but that's how they interpret it. Well, then if you can add to the sufferings of Christ, there were literally accounts of people thrown to the lions, but the lion had already ate and didn't want another Christian, and it was too docile, (laughs) and they'd be trying to pull the lion onto them. You know, kill me, kill me. They were afraid the lion wouldn't kill them, and then they wouldn't have this better resurrection. Wow. And so uh, in human nature and in world religions, be assured that if there's any way to take the idea of human superiority, works, whatever, and add it in, people will figure out a way to do it. Yes. That's exactly what Colossians is about. I'm sorry yeah. I'm a little tired. I was up till. 10.30 last night talking about Christianity with my 18-year-old grandson. Oh, wow. And I felt I needed to do that, but I will still preach a sermon too. Bob, we'll have to look up. Does anybody have a good search engine? I want to make sure we get that passage right. Um, uh, Philippians 1.24. Fill, right? Filling up the uh, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What's interesting is the concept that's taught in the Bible is think about the Son. It has nothing to do with providing atonement. That's been provided once and for all by Messiah. But think about what God has ordained is that there's this full accompaniment or allotment of suffering for the people of God. 
Jesus initiates it, but those who follow after him, remember corporate solidarity, the one and the many, they also are going to be ingrafted into this type of suffering. Why? Because they're with him. Not to earn salvation, but because they're with him. And so it's ordained that there is so much suffering that will occur for the people of God. The implication is when that's finished, he returns. Yeah, actually there's a better explanation of that that I first heard in a sermon in chapel at Bethel Seminary early on in the early 90s. And I as I dug into it in the Greek, that uh, what is lacking is probably a reference of bringing the gospel to them. Oh, sure. And I heard Piper mention that as well. Yeah, yeah. he's the one that I first heard it from. Yeah. And then I looked it up in the Greek New yeah. Testament and concluded that that's the correct interpretation. Okay, excellent. So that's okay, the best way So to Christ it. suffered for sins. Well, the only thing lacking is for people to go out and preach the gospel. Yes, and then people are saved. Okay, the full so number comes in. Here, Where did you ahead. find it, Andy? Colossians one twenty four. Colossians one twenty four. Okay, excellent. I should right. have known. Well, that. I tell you what, I'm sorry, I'm short on time, but I'll keep rolling. But I want to help everybody in here spot these conditional sentences. And so let's begin. Now, again, in Greek it's fairly easy, but in English it takes a little bit of skill. So let's deal first of all. You're, when you're looking for a conditional sentence, it's obvious that you're looking for ifs, right? The thens will often be implied, and you'll have to insert those. But you're certainly going to be looking for ifs. But there's other catches like whoever. When you see the biblical author use a whoever, you're probably dealing with a conditional sentence. Now, how would we change this Mark 10, 15 into an if-then? Where Jesus says, remember I used this a couple weeks ago, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Okay, now how would we change that? Well, whoever can be changed into a if-anyone. If anyone does not receive the kingdom of God like a child then he will not enter it at all. Okay? And again, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with a third-class conditional. This is the way the world is. If anyone does not receive the kingdom like a child, it's a gift, not of works, then they won't enter. That's the way God has constructed salvation. Third-class, present general condition. All right, now let's look at another example of what you'll see in your English versions. You'll often see unless. Okay, now when you're looking at an unless... Remember, you're looking for the protasis first. The protasis is the if portion. There's your condition. Okay, so the unless is also the condition. That's what you're looking for. So now you know your protasis is right here. So let's change it to an if statement. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, could be changed to if the Lord had not shortened those days. Now here's the implied apotasis. Then what? No life would have been saved. All right. Now, this is interesting. It's a second-class conditional. Jesus saying, let's say for sake of argument, I know this is untrue, but if the Lord had not shortened those days, and he actually will, then what's the consequence? Well, then no life would have been saved. Okay, but notice what Jesus does here. He says, but, now here's a strong contrastive conjunction, Allah. He says, but for the sake of the elect, what is he really doing? He's denying the consequent, isn't he? Notice he's saying, Here it says, no life would have been saved. He's saying, well, the elect will be saved. That's some life. So if some life, he's negating this, if some life has been saved, then what? Exactly, Bob is right. Then the Lord had shortened the days. Okay, and that's that's exactly what he says here. Okay, so classic second-class conditional, unless is if the Lord had not. Okay, so again, if you see unless, you say, oh, there's my protasis. I got to reword it with an F, and just play with it, and you'll get it. It takes time. 
Okay. Now we all had homework, and that was from John six forty four. Now remember, as you look at these, there's no. I'm, I'm not looking for perfection here. I want you to think about as we're studying logic, and you go away, you say, you know what? I don't really have it down. Don't worry about it. Uh, Bob and I were talking about golf. Do you ever play golf once and you say, you know what? I've mastered it. This is a lifelong skill that I'm introducing to you. Well, yeah, with, with golf, it is a lifelong frustration. <laughs> That's right. It'll challenge your faith, right? It calls for the perseverance of the saints. But anyone, does anyone want to take a stab at John 6.44? First of all, let me just uh, throw this out there. Where's our prodigies? The condition is here, isn't it? All right? Now, remember, sometimes the apodosis will come first and the prodigies comes second. Okay, and that's what you have here. So sometimes you have to, you know, rephrase things. Okay, so does anybody want to take a stab at this one? Chris. What's your charge? Uh, no one can come to me unless the Father... No one can come to me if the Father who sent me does not draw him. Yeah, that's good. Yep, exactly. You, it is, absolutely. Um, you, you read it with the apodosis first, which is certainly, I mean, obviously Jesus says it that way. So you had the apodosis first. Let's try putting the prodosis in front just so we can see it more clearly. So say your prodosis, the if portion first. If no one comes to believe in me, then the Father... No, no, I'm sorry. Um, if the Father who sent me does not draw him... Okay, do you see that? Yeah. Then, wh- no what's the... come to me. Then, exactly. That's the way we want to phrase it. Because then all of a sudden you have the if, then, in the right order. Does that make sense? So we know our prodigious is here unless, is what? If the Father who sent me does not draw him, then no one can come to me. Notice here, Jesus does... Does everybody see that? Okay, now these yeah. take practice, and you'll, you'll get better at them as you see them. So sometimes the apodosis comes first. And you have to differentiate between the apodosis and prodigies. One thing I want to point out here is notice this very interesting phrase at the end where Jesus says, oops, let me just put it up here, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, by the way, I just put it up here what it should be. If the, I mean, you're, you're doing a great job, Chris. If the Father who sent me does not draw him, then he is unable to come. But what I want you to take note of is this very interesting phrase. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John, being raised up, is not for the unbeliever, it's only for the believer. It's synonymous with salvation. So what is Jesus really doing here? He's really, in a fancy way, denying the apodosis, which is valid. Okay, why? Well, he's talking only about those who are saved, so he's talking about only those who can come to him. But notice the way he has it constructed, no one can come to me, so he negates it. One can come to me, therefore what? The Father has drawn him. Okay, why? Because follow the logic. He says, I will raise him up on the last day, meaning he's saved. The only way you're saved is if you come to Jesus. So he's negating the consequent or negating the apodosis. He's saying, one can come to me, therefore what the Father draws him. Now let me ask you this question. Here Jesus is denying the consequent. The question is, does God raise everyone up unto salvation? He does not. Therefore, a logical conclusion from this is the Father only draws some. It's a refutation of the doctrine of provenient grace. The Armenians say he draws everybody. It's a refutation. Let me show you another example. 
John 6, 37, seven verses earlier. Now, this is not a conditional sentence, so don't worry about it. We're just working on theology here. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Notice here, when he says, all that the Father gives me, the giving is synonymous with the drawing. Okay, just seven verses later. Okay, now notice he says, all those who the Father gives, or seven verses later, the Father draws to me. He says, they will come. So there's no one that is drawn or given by the Father that will not come. They will come. Okay? But notice, if they come because they're drawn, he says, I will certainly not cast out. In other words, all those who are drawn will come, and all those who will come will be saved. He's not going to lose one of them. Is everybody with the logic? Yeah. Very good. Uh, And this verse is important, right? Because any time... Any kind of exclusive Christian claim is made. Somebody's going to say, well, it's not fair. Somebody, some noble-minded person, I think of my conversation last night, but some noble-minded person must be on the island of Samoa, (laughs) and God doesn't want them. The the (laughs) point is this. The idea that there's somebody wanting to come to God, coming to Christ, sits at the foot of the cross, and the Lord's saying, we don't want you, you're not one of the elect. This is a nil set, is what you'd say in math. There is no such thing. Yes. Okay, and so if you want to say, which some of my critics on the Internet will do, God doesn't elect anybody or he elects everybody and you unelect yourself or whatever they want to believe, you (laughs) cannot say that you agree to the terms of the gospel and repent and have faith in the finished work of Christ, and then God is going to say, no, you're not one of the elect. Exactly. This verse denies that. Yes. It's empty. And so they empty want to be set. angry, be angry, but you can't say God rejects people who come to him. Powerful implication, Bob. Yes, the universal call, if anyone does come to him, he will not cast them out. Mm-hmm. Wonderful said. Now, I'm going to do something that Andy and I are going to be working on in his studio. I'm going to be doing, remember, categorical syllogisms. What I'm going to do is lay out a categorical syllogism to show you the power of logic. I'm not asking you to check for validity. I have guaranteed validity in my own name. I've put it in valid form. I want you to think of the power that we have of logic when we put arguments together. Listen to what, I'm going to give you premise one. Remember, a premise is where we're putting forward our argument, our evidence. Remember, an argument is simply presenting reasons for your conclusion. So here we're going to give a reason for our conclusion. Premise one, all those drawn, now remember, I'm not saying all people, but all those drawn by God, is implied, I couldn't fit it all on the screen, all those drawn by God will be saved. Now, where did we get that? Well, we got it from John 6, 37. Those that the Father gives, same as drawn, will come, and those who come will certainly not be cast out. John six forty four. no one can come to me unless a Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day, therefore he can come to me. He negates the consequent. If he can come to me, therefore he's drawn. All those who are raised up are those who are drawn, right? Is everybody with me? So now that's premise one. It comes from the scriptures. And because premise one comes from the scriptures, it's true. It's valid, right? Okay, now premise number two, all people are not saved. We know that from scripture, right? Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says, wide is the path that leads to destruction and many enter in through it. Revelation 20, 15, those whose names are not found in the book of life will be cast where into the lake of fire. So we know that, you know, all are not saved. 
Okay, so because those two premises come from Scripture, we know that they're true. Now, here comes the conclusion. All people then, therefore, all people are not those who are drawn by God. Now, this is in valid form. Remember we said if you have an argument in valid form and the premises are true, what do you have? You have reality. You have a necessary conclusion. Exactly. argument going on but the major premise is not true in the real world exactly okay and so you can have a valid argument right but it's still false in this bigger statement because it doesn't fit the real world it's exactly when we have jesus christ who came um who was you know eternally with god and came and spoke god's words to us and god cannot lie we don't have to question the validity. We know it's true. Amen. That's exactly and right. And he proved it by his own resurrection from the dead. Bob, that's wonderful. And that's, I think, the power of logic. Think about this. If a logician looked at this, they would say, you know what? That argument is valid. It's constructed in a valid way. Now, what that forces the person to do is to say, the only way this is not true is if one of the premises are not true. Okay, so it forces what, what, so what you can do is you can say, what's the issue at hand? Are these premises really true? And I think, obviously, they are. And therefore, if it's constructed in a valid way, the premises are true, the conclusion is necessarily true. Now you have a sound argument. A sound argument is both valid and what? It's true. It corresponds to reality. Therefore, prevenient grace is not possible, is it? Prevenient grace says God draws all people. That's the Arminian stronghold. You've just shown that that cannot be the case. See what a man can do in his little nook with a little logic? You can sit there and what is, Bob, I love your saying, what does Luther say to the Pope? A man armed oh, with the truth. To be silent because you're judged to be false. <laughs> yes, yes. I, yeah, uh, let's go back to Luke 7 that you brought up earlier. Yep, yep. Right now I'm writing an article or I had written earlier and I'm going to put this in better form to publish for CIC yeah. on... on Dining with the King, Christian yes. Fellowship. Let's go back to Luke 7. So here you have religious leaders who in their own eyes must be the ones that God is pleased with, right? And they invite Jesus because, you know, he has a big following and he seems to know some things about God. And in comes a sinner woman, and there's a lot of implications going on in there that she was really bad. I mean, a really wicked, immoral lady. And she's touching Jesus, weeping on his feet, and these people are just aghast and they're offended and they can't stand that she's in their house even. And what's with Jesus? He's no prophet. You would just throw her out. Well, you read that whole narrative, and the only one we know that was drawn is the sinner woman. (laughs) Yeah, that's the irony. He says, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Your faith has saved you. Faith Go in peace. Oh, peace wow. meaning being a recipient of messianic salvation. Yeah. And so God delights in reversal, and I love that. Yeah, that's right. Okay? And the worst thing we could ever do is think, I'm important. God would have to invite me. Right. Because right. then you're Haman and not Mordecai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bad thing to be Haman. Very reversal. Um, you know, we've got a few minutes. I might go about five minutes over. Um, I want to show you an exegetically significant case. And one of the things that I want to 
help you think about is now that you know apodosis and apodosis, when you're reading biblical commentaries, when they talk about an apodosis, you're no longer locked out of the conversation. You say, well, I know what that is. It's just simply the then portion of the statement. And I read a very important exegetical commentary, a man named Robert Thomas from Master's uh, Theological Seminary, and he helped me understand Second Thessalonians by showing me something that I'd never seen with the apodosis of Second Thessalonians 2.3. And so I want to share that with you. Let's look at Second Thessalonians 2. And before I put it up, the context is this. At Thessalonica, you have Christians who are undergoing such severe persecution, they think they are living in the day of the Lord. Okay, they think that, in fact, they've missed the Lord's return. They've missed it. They weren't good enough. They have false teachers that are telling them that. And you are currently living, these false teachers are saying, during the day of the Lord. Why? Well, look at all the persecution and suffering you're going through. And so what Paul has to say is, no, no, no. You're not living in the day of the Lord. And listen to how he constructs his argument. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.2, I like the NRSV here. He warns them not to be quickly shaken, he says, from your composure in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a message, by word or by letter, as if though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Now, the reason I like the NRSV is because it correctly translates anastake in a verb already here or present. The King James Version says that the day of the Lord is impending. Okay, in other words, it's coming. That's not correct. The NRSV does a bang-up job here. Anastaken, perfect tense verb, it's already here. They thought they were already in the day of the Lord. Okay, now, here's what I want you to see. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, Paul uses a third-class conditional sentence, present general condition, to respond. Notice what he says. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Okay? Now, for the, we only got about five minutes here. For the sake of time, where is our prodesis? It's right here, isn't it? And remember how we went from unless to if? We said, if the apostasy does not come first and the man of lawlessness is not revealed, the idea of the son of destruction, then, here's the apodosis, it will not come. Okay? But notice I have italicized the apodosis right here. Will not come. That is not in your Greek text. Your English translator had to supply that. It's not there. It has to be supplied by the English translator. It's it will not something, right? You have to supply it. It's not there in the Greek text. Oftentimes, Paul will do that. He'll assume from the previous verse the apodosis. So you have to supply the apodosis. It will not come, or whatever it is in that phrase, from what? From up here. The day of the Lord is already here. But notice the discrepancy that we have in our English versions. Notice up here, they're talking about the day of the Lord is already here. But notice that doesn't jive with our apodosis because that's talking about something in the future. It will not come. Well, that's not a very good apodosis. It should be rendered, it is not here. So the apostasy, if, if the apostasy does not come first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, then what? It, the day of the Lord, is not here. Now to prove to you that this verb already here is best translated already here, let me just show you how it's used throughout the New Testament. Anastakin, Romans 8.38 Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, that's anastaken, would it make any sense to say 
things that are impending. No, because right away it says, nor things to come. Okay? Nor powers. 1 Corinthians 3.22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. My point is, I won't belabor it, but every time Anastakin is used, it's always present. The reason that matters is we know the NRSV is right. It's not that the day of the Lord was impending or coming in the future. It was already here. That was their fear. Is everybody with me? And so now as we supply the apotesis, that's what Paul demands of us. He doesn't give it to us. The best rendering again is it is not here unless the apostasy comes first, the man of lawlessness, etc. What's very interesting is when you look at similar constructions with coming first, it's proton, whether it's Mark 3.27, John 7.51, in every instance you have that construction, the first is within the confined space. In other words, it's not something has to come first before something else happens. It's something happens first in the order. In other words, the apostasy here would be before the man of lawlessness, not before the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? And you can look at that similar construction in Mark 3.27, John 7.51. Okay, we don't have time for that, but here's what it leaves us with. If you have an incorrect apotesis, this is what you have. You have, it will not come, that is the day of the Lord, unless what? The apostasy and the man of lawlessness. And so what you have then is you have the day of the Lord conceived as this, and the apostasy and the Antichrist, they must come first. But if you get your apotesis correct... It is not present. Remember, they thought they were living in it. But he's saying you're not living in it because the first thing within it is what? It's the apostasy in the man of lawlessness. And so what you have conceived then is the day of the Lord like this. The day of the Lord begins here. The first thing within it is the apostasy, which comes first before the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And so what Paul is saying is, look, you can't be living in the day of the Lord. Because if you were living in the day of the Lord, what's the first thing within it? Well, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay? Why that's important is you have liberal theologians who will say, Paul couldn't have written 2 Thessalonians 2. Why? Because in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. A thief doesn't give a precursor. Whoops, sorry. He doesn't give a precursor, right? If he doesn't give a precursor, that means there's nothing to tip you off. And so what? In 2 Thessalonians, he seems to be saying that there is a precursor. It won't come until the man of lawlessness, and the, the apostasy comes. But that's assuming the wrong apotesis. Now when you read a technical commentary and you're reading about an apotesis and apotesis, you're not locked out of the conversation. You can say, I know what this apotesis is. It's just the then portion. Oh, I have to assume, oh, that doesn't line up. Now you're part of the, the discussion. And no longer do you have to simply say, well, one teacher says this and another teacher says that, and maybe more teachers say this view. I'm going with that view. Now you're part of the discussion, and you can weigh in on the exegetical arguments determining the theology for yourself. And I think that helps us be better Bereans, okay? With that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for our time together. I thank you so much for uh, our church, all the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. I pray, Lord, that this information, again, would sink in, but that the brothers and sisters here would realize that this is a long term plan to learn logic and better exegetical skills to know you and your word and i pray that they'd be excited about this and that they would seek to learn and grow every day 
I pray for Bob as he preaches the sermon to us this morning. I pray that we would have hearts that are open to understand your word, to understand better the role of your church. And I pray for Mike Kaufman as he lays out church membership, that you would speak through him and open our ears to understand the importance of being members at this local body so that we would be those who are about your business, not like the Laodiceans, but that we would be about your business, proclaiming your gospel, that we would bring glory to your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank